0: Hi, I'm Stacy Jagger. Welcome to the Inspiring Families Podcast. Our goal is to help families heal, grow, and thrive by offering encouragement and empowering family members to connect with one another. We are here with Rich Johnson. He is an interventionist, and I have had um, a wonderful opportunity to meet with Rich and we're going to hear his story today about um, just how he entered into the addiction field. And the whole purpose of this conversation really is to inspire families to ask for help when you really need it. So I welcome you, Rich. So good to see you today.
1: Grateful for, for you to have me on. Grateful for you to take a minute. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm a big fan of yours. And Oh, uh, thanks. Specifically the work you do like surrounding children and stuff. Yeah. um has like impacted the way that I parent you know especially when it Good. comes to the screen time and things like that
0: yeah but I'm a pretty big stickler on that aren't I yes I am well maybe we'll weave some of that in uh, and thank you for your kind words I really want to hear your story your background how you kind of ended up with a heart for you know and really the backbone to be able to do such difficult work I mean I as a therapist myself i don't know that i could sustain the kind of intervention after intervention after intervention that you do and so i'm really curious how you're able to sustain that kind of difficult intensity quite honestly but maybe we can back up for a minute and you can kind of tell me where you got how you know where you came from and how you got here
1: sure absolutely the <clears throat> The answer to your first question is the answer to your second question. And It's uh, I'm, I'm able to sustain, you know, kind of that level of intensity through um, exposure and inoculation um, through my own story, um, the way that the way that I got clean. Um, I was I spent 10 ish years. Addicted to heroin, I was an IV user in East Baltimore, back up north in Maryland. Um, I had a relatively normal for that time and place childhood. Um, You know, was what basically amounted to a a single parent household: uh, my mom and me and my sister. And um, you know, I guess I, I went through a normal experimentation phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of crossed the line into something else. I was having, uh, you know, like interpersonal difficulties. Um, I was having interpersonal difficulties in, you know, my little teenage life. I was a, you know, I was a problematic teenager and like hyper emotional. And, um, you know, my friends responded to it negatively and it caused me to isolate. And then on top of that, uh, um, I began being sexually molested by my teacher. Um wow. yeah, she was she was 31 and I was 16. And I don't okay. um and I fully recognize that this not is not tantamount to violent rape, and I don't want to conflate it with that, but um, you know, I was 16 and she was 31.
0: Confusing, very confusing yeah. for a 16-year-old boy. Sure.
1: Definitely. And continued to cause confusion well into, you know, after I was supposed to have figured some things out about, you know, women and how they work and what my relationship with them was. Not that, not that I figured them out yet, but. um, (laughs) We're mysteries.
0: (laughs) God made us that way on purpose. Sure. I can
1: tell. So that, so that started happening and, you know, I, I shifted away from, you know, maybe using some pot and alcohol with my friends and, you know, started digging deep into different pharmaceutical pills and things like that. Um, I think kind of followed a, you know, what's a, what's a natural progression once you start down that road. Um, until ultimately I landed at heroin and and like a ton of people, I started taking um, prescription painkillers, Mm -hmm. Um, they weren't, they weren't prescribed to me, but, um, you know, they were, I had access to Are you
0: talking about oxycodone and that kind Mm -hmm. of, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I ruptured two discs in my neck about five, six years ago, and I was in such pain that they put me on oxycodone for a couple of weeks. And when I detoxed from those couple of weeks of you know it being medically necessary for me to be on drugs that you know um, severe or whatever what I'm thinking of, it was the first time that I really had a deep sense of empathy for my clients' parents typically that have been sent off to treatment for detox, because I don't think I had a real understanding of it until then. Um, I've never been so sick in my life you know, from coming off of those, uh, those pain medications. So maybe talk about what, what was the, the end of it for you? What was your bottom? When did you say enough is enough? Who kind of showed up for you? Can you talk about that for a second?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent the last cumulative three or four years of my drug using saying enough is enough and you know, wishing that I could tap out or you know just get there somebody to stop the ride, um, and it, it ultimately Somebody
0: stop the ride. Stop yeah. the
1: ride. That, that's how I always think about it. Like if I'm, you know, I remember being like on carnival rides when I was a little kid, and um, you know, but getting too really afraid. Fun,
0: but I really went off this ride. Is that what? Yeah,
1: it's saying. too much. i It's more than I bargained for. Like, mommy, mommy, night. tell the man, tell the man, stop the ride. <laughs> stop.
0: <laughs> That's so good. That's
1: so good. Uh, you know, but th- I I learned the hard way that like, you know, mommy wasn't coming. Nobody was stopping the ride. Uh-huh. Um and uh ultimately, you know, kind of where where it all ended up was um I was homeless and I had two people in the world who I cared about and who were, you know, I tried to care about and who tried to care about me. And that was, um, a cousin who was like a brother to me mm-hmm. and he was homeless with me and he was using drugs with me.
0: Okay. And I had a
1: girlfriend okay. at the time. And, um, my cousin died of a fentanyl overdose. Wow. Um, and my girlfriend, um, she took off and started prostituting herself to support her drug habit. Mm-hmm. And she had too, and I was, homeless and finally had been picked up by the police for <clears throat> a litany of petty crimes that I had committed to support my drug habit mm-hmm. um, it wasn't anything too serious but it was so much of it that it there was like 20 20 year sentence hanging over top of my head so kind of mm-hmm. my my bottom if I can call it that you know I guess I've had several um, I was sitting in a jail cell and my cousin was dead and my girlfriend was off turning tricks on the East side of Baltimore. And I was like, you were talking about, you know, going through withdrawal. So I'm dope sick and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm in jail in the Baltimore department of corrections. Uh, I have a pillow over there with a pillowcase on it. That is a, a copy of my photo ID from the Baltimore department of corrections. It's my little inside joke to myself. Um,
0: you made it into a pillow oh my gosh
1: yeah i got that i just got the little pillow That's just kind of my little um you know grateful to not be here anymore um so anyway i was
0: hold on a minute let's talk about this for a second because you know i find it interesting that you know most of us would want to cut that up and just you know, throw it away and never look at it again. But you have made the decision to make a pillow out of it, which is, I mean, that's pretty courageous, Rich, you know, Um, I want to stick, I want to stick with this conversation for a minute. So what was your, what was your thought process? I'm going to turn this jail experience and I'm going to turn it into a pillow.
1: That it's, so I think that's like this gallows humor. That's maybe like popular, or at least prevalent in addicts, you know, which yeah. that's how I identify. Uh-huh. So it was just that I thought, I thought this would be funny. So I got my, my fiance, you know, I, I've got one of her mugshot over there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to show you that because she's <laughs> really, I love she like much. Great. Um, but it's, it's just something that I thought, I thought on, on one hand, on the, you know, kind of like ostensibly it's funny and ha ha. And then like when i waited out in my spirit you know like is this joke worth you know what it might mean you know whatever it might mean um i kind of i kind of thought like and and really whenever i i I look over at those pillows then like it's like a little shot of of gratitude for me and of like and of wow of you know like look at look at all the hope look at I mean, geez, like, I'm um, <laughs> um, you know, the life that I have today is nothing like the guy in that picture. I mean, I'm sitting at my house in West Palm beach, you know, blah, 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 all the material stuff. And then not to mention the, the, the peace and the freedom that, like I have inside. So that's why I like looking at that. I like looking at that. So and, it's a know.
0: really a reminder of where, where you came from and a sense of gra- gives you a sense of gratitude of where you are now. Yes.
1: Totally. Okay. And it's a cool contrast. It's a, you know, my, uh, I was joking around with my fiance last night we have like a, like a mini like, wet bar that's just built into our house. And I told her like that I had a vision of like having friends over to watch the UFC, and that like maybe I could get a blender and make uh, virgin pina coladas. And I was totally serious, like as I'm saying this, like I you know I want to make like I like the pineapple and coconut mix, whatever. Um, And I'm telling her about this vision. She's laughing at me. She's like, "You are like such a doof right now," and you know, she's kind of started to just pick on me a little bit about, you know, making virgin drinks and and wanting to entertain friends. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Jesus, like I used to rob drug dealers in East Baltimore. And now (laughs) here I am making virgin pina coladas, having visions of hopefully someday not having to give up all my friends.
0: Well, I love that a virgin uh, pina col- colada is, is your entertainment now, you know, rather than oxycodone and whatever else you were the heroin and all the other things. Let's fast forward uh, just a little it. bit. So how did you end up as an interventionist where you have the courage <laughs> and the, and the backbone to show up to someone's home on behalf of the family, Right that have reached out to you and they're, I'm I'm guessing they're in a desperate place and kind of, I'm guessing you're the last resort. Like, talk to me about your work and how you ended up in this field. And um, we can kind of hit that back and forth a little bit.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, So the, I'm I'm hesitant to call it courage. You you said courage, Um, the, I guess the ability to endure the, stress and the tension of having to approach people like that, that came built in by the time, by the time I started doing that, all of that was built in from the experience that I had when I was out there using, I mean, stay like I, I did, I did 10 city and East Baltimore. I did, I did the Baltimore department of corrections. I've, mm-hmm. you know, had guns pointed at me. I've been beaten within an inch of my life. So I don't, it like, it doesn't feel stressful to me, even if I have to go into a hotel room where, you know, a guy is, you know, he's like, is something that really happens. Some guys stuck down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and he's kind of hanging around with like these Haitian gangbangers who don't really want him to leave and go to treatment. And that one was a little scary, maybe bad example. That was a little scary, but um, it's not that big of a deal for me. You know, I've lived in this world and I don't want to, you know, ever put myself in like unsafe situations, but I'm not, like, I'm not scared of that. Um,
0: So you're saying that you've really um, matched the intensity of your drug using days, but now you're using your skills for good rather than for destruction. Yes. 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 Okay. Nice.
1: Or at least, uh, you know, like I haven't forgotten the things that I've, I haven't forgotten those experiences and that like, you know, my brain, you know, like the stuff that happens in my brain like that, what triggers uh, a, a fight or flight response in my brain is not the same as it was before the first time somebody ever pointed a gun at me or the first time I ever got beat up, you know, like kind of that, you know, like you get like inoculated over time right um can you so i'm able to tell kind of... what
0: you're like in in your work what are you seeing what kinds of families are reaching out to you how can they reach out to you how do they know they should re- reach out to you can you talk about that process for a little bit
1: yeah absolutely so if they think they should they should and the reason is we we'll, you know we have a finely tuned process where they'll do an assessment and if they're not right for an intervention we'll know that Um, and then we're also plugged in with a ton of other resources and we do a ton of referrals to other services that aren't you know they're not right for us
0: Um, so let's just say I have a family member let's say I have a child that I'm concerned about and I reach out to you can you walk me through it like teach me how this works from a
1: to z sure maybe not from a to z maybe i can give you like the the kind of general overview it's a (laughs) (laughs) um yeah maybe i can get you through like l or something i don't know um perfect so the first thing is, is somebody needs to reach out usually that happens by phone um and usually what happens is someone will Um, they'll mention it to like their therapists or they'll end up, they'll Google, you know, intervention, whatever, and a drug and alcohol treatment program will pop up because those guys own search engines. Um, so first thing, phone call and we'll either do an assessment right there on the spot if we can, or we'll schedule it. Um, we do a lot of them. It takes like 30 or 45 minutes. They'll do an assessment. They'll get asked a ton of questions about what's going on um and then from there that gets passed off to me from whoever does the assessment and i'll look it over i'll ask questions of whoever did the assessment if i need to call the family and get more information i will but like write that in there i'm building out a profile of who are these people what is the system yeah. where what's going on um and then i'll direct you know what somebody who's on the phone for us or you know i do this myself sometimes too so reach back out to the family and say hey look here's here's what we can do for you um because on you know I own rosecrest Recovery Services and on top of interventions we do a ton of other problem solving work around behavioral health addiction mental health um so I'll say hey here's what we can you know you might not be right for intervention but um you know I'm going to refer you to this treatment center that's a good fit for this person for x reason and we'll send a sober companion over you know part of what we do um if it's if if it is an intervention case then we jump into the intervention process and that can look like one of several things i'm trained in several different intervention modalities i use most often Um, a johnson model and it's not named after me it's actually it's older than i am um, Vernon Johnson in the sometime in the 70s, I believe, started working on that model. And that's kind of like the classic Coke um intervention model. So it's a surprise model of intervention with a series of letters that are read aloud to the identified patient in a surprise meeting. Um, but that I'm not like emotionally partial to that model, but it coincides with I think the demographic of addict who's out there more prevalently now. So like a lot of what I see is fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. and that's because the fentanyl is in everything now. So as soon as I hear fentanyl, that, you know, if a mom tells me fentanyl or even if a mom tells me cocaine, if a mom tells me heroin, there's fentanyl in all of it. Um, You have to, you at least have to assume there's fentanyl in all of it. So I hear that. And basically what you're telling me is we need to do something yesterday. Um, Mm.
0: OK, because the
1: yeah, the clock is ticking. So the Johnson model lends itself really well to that. You know, we come in and we kind of do this. I like to call it like this one punch knockout um, to the best of our ability. Can, at you least.
0: Walk, can you kind of like land the plane and like walk us into the room of what that would look like, sound like, feel like for a family to do an intervention with letters, reading the letters out loud to their loved one? Can you kind of talk about that?
1: Yeah, Um, it is all of the all of the intervention models that I use, especially the Johnson model. They have energy to them. And that is what I view, like my job as an interventionist is I am a director of energy. um, Because there's there's an emotionality that's in that room. So what does it feel like? Um, it's heavy and it's tense walking into it Um, it feels like maybe it feels like a casino at 3 in the morning you know where you know if you've ever been like in an environment like that where that there's there's only there's a few people gathered around and they're all you know they're gonna bet the farm on red or whatever um because that's what's going on that's what's going on with these families is that you know they're they bet everything this is because you're right i am by the time they call me they should have called me last year universally nobody calls me when they should should call me because they don't know you can't blame them um
0: so most of the calls you're getting it's the 11th hour oh yeah okay
1: yeah it's already it's 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 progressed it's advanced um, I don't. I get very few calls that you know, or like some fledgling substance use or I do. I do some work with adolescents, and that's a different animal. But most of the time, you know, by the time you call me, it's almost call like God. going
0: into a war zone a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's that. for okay. like
1: I do. I do competitive Brazilian jiu jitsu, and that's okay. walking into like a jiu jitsu fight, you know?
0: Right.
1: Um, yeah where like you have to, you know, the the disease is going to be in that room and it's going to be doing everything it can to preserve its existence. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of going in there and grappling with that. Um, and it's it's like nothing else. I I firmly enjoy it. Um,
0: I bet you do. I <laughs> bet you yeah. do. I believe you 100%. Can you talk about the best and the worst case scenarios? um in your work you know like this is if it's going to go really well this is what it looks like if it's really not going to go well this is what it looks like
1: yeah totally um best case scenario is my identified patient immediately they go to treatment after being basically lovingly and gently asked to go They go, they get amazing treatment, they get an amazing continuing care plan, and they enter into a life of recovery until they die old and from natural causes. And the family that I'm working with also goes and they get the help that they need for the trauma that they've endured as a result of the addiction from all of the brokenness of the family system that has caused addiction to perpetuate um, up to a certain point, and for you know any myriad of things, you know, addiction is a, a nasty substrate for a lot of nasty stuff to grow up out of. Um, so that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, worst case scenario is the family doesn't do anything that I ask them to do, and they think that they know best, and they continue down a uh, path of dysfunction and sickness and there's no there's no chance that the identified patient the person who's using is ever going to get help um you know as long as the dynamic is broken um so
0: really when a family doesn't take direction that's when they go south is that right
1: yes yeah but most of the time on the front end like during the assessment process i'm probing to find out are you guys ready to undergo this process and if i feel like they're not going to take directions from me, then I just, I chalked I chalk that up to there's not an intervention to have here. If you guys are not going to do what I asked then you don't need me, you know, please keep my number if you change your mind. Um, that's, I, that's never happened. I've never had it where a family would not take any directions from me at all. Um, the worst case that I've seen is um, IP isn't ready to go to treatment yet and, or they're not willing to go to treatment yet and family undergoes the process anyway, and they learn how to be okay, even if, Mm. you know, John is out there, he's uh, addicted and he's doing his thing and they're okay anyway. Uh, That's sort of an Al-Anon
0: approach where, you know, they're living with an active uh, addict and they're choosing to live the best life that they can in spite of that circumstance. Is that what I'm kind of picking up on with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, addressing everything we talked about before—trauma, the, the, the broken the family
0: system—exactly. Yeah. Got it. That
1: okay. all can, you know, can be healed why, independent of what this the IP is out there doing.
0: Got it. Okay. So, do, Rich, do you fly all over the country, or is this primarily local? Like, talk to me about you know how busy you get and can people reach out to you from all over the place like can you talk to me about that for just a second
1: yeah absolutely um, all of the all the contact information is up on www.rosecrustrecoveryservices.com um that'll
0: actually services.com. okay got it yep.
1: and that there's a contact us tab and that goes there's an email address that links directly to my email i personally will get that and the number listed up there is that's a direct line to me as well um <clears throat> as far as how busy i get um insanely insanely busy <laughs> oh it's uh it you know things slow down sometimes and i enjoy that that's the you know i take advantage yeah. of that time. And I go, yeah. play with my, but it has the capacity to get really very busy um and i i'm a stickler for um, like that Rose and what we do, like our, our brand is precision and anything you can think of, we've already thought of it and it's covered. So I'm careful not to let myself get too busy, no matter how many calls come in, because I can't, you know, this is somebody's kid. This is somebody's husband. This is somebody's wife. I can't get so busy that I over, I can't overlook anything. There can't be like an oopsie or something. Right. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm all over the country. I was in the, you and I had scheduled this, and I, I apologize for having to cancel last time. But, oh, it's okay. Um, flexible. You and I had scheduled this, and uh, I was working with a family up in Georgia. So I had to go head out to Georgia and, um, you know, help out with what they had going on. Um, you know, I've done work out in California, Kentucky, a bunch of Tennessee, down in Florida, Alabama. Georgia, I just said uh, all I mean all over the country.
0: Yeah. Okay. Texas. Can you maybe how long have you been sober, Rich?
1: My clean date is October the 16th of no, October the 20th of 2016.
0: There we go. Nice. And tell me how sobriety has um positively affected your parenting.
1: Oh my goodness. I am so blessed that i became a parent when i was already in recovery um i could there's not there's no dice if i'm not clean as far as parenting goes no dice there's not a there's not a game to play there There's mm-hmm. um you know i and i'm speaking for myself the way that i use drugs um if i am if i take so much as you know a drop of beer or something i I will not be a parent the way that I have come to understand parenting. You know, I will, I will be the you know person who has provided the biological input to create this life. Um, but a parent is, you know, I know that you could talk about that probably way more than I could, but a parent is something so much more than that. And, you know, the guy who I showed you on the pillow, that guy's not a parent. He's not cut out to be a parent. He'll never be a parent. <laughs>
0: yeah, but my guess. Rich, is you've got a deep sense of gratitude about being able to have the opportunity to parent a child, you know, with a different kind of wisdom that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And I'm just guessing you probably see that through a completely different pair of glasses, right, than someone that hasn't been through a lot of challenges and, um, you know, trauma and all, all that goes along with it, so... Um, tell me your thoughts about what's going on with kids and adolescents and drugs right now.
1: I was Talking, uh, to someone about this last night, um, the entry level drugs in effect, the marijuana and, um, you know, you, this wasn't always the case, but pills are an entry-level drug now. Um, the drugs are stronger than they've ever been, um, and it's causing it's causing me to see an accelerated timeline. Um, and the, the timeline has been the timeline for ultimately demise and the you know crashing and burning of a human life um, has been accelerating since uh, for a long time. You know, in the before I was born um you know you would see alcoholics in their 50s and you know that's kind of like when that was developing and then we had a crack epidemic and you know younger and then part of the opiate the opiate epidemic what i was a part of you know developing Mm -hmm. problems in in my 20s and now what we're seeing is um teenagers who are full-blown drug addicts you know they're not um You know in an experimentation phase or anything like that they are the real deal drug addict Um, and i think that's because the severity of the substance causes a compulsion to present itself in such a frequency that it just accelerates the the timeline um of crossing that threshold into um you know not just a problematic user i'm an addict does that make sense I'm,
0: sit- I'm sitting here asking myself the question as i'm listening to you talk about you know as we know alcoholism and addiction is a family disease and i'm as a family therapist and I, i'm now doing family wellness coaching for more high performing families that don't necessarily fall into the criteria of needing mental health services but those are kind of two different things but I'm really curious, as you're able to see people get sober, what ends up happening with the family? Like, do they get the help that they need for the whole family or is it very disjointed? Is there not enough family therapists out there that know how to work with the whole family on that, you know, the identified patient's behalf? Like, what are your thoughts about like true, good quality help for the family in the aftermath of recovering from addiction you know an adult child or an adolescent child getting into recovery like can you talk about that for a sec
1: yeah there's a lack of resources but there are some good ones out there and and I know that you're one of them um Thank you. The, very yeah absolutely um the problem that i encounter is you know you might never believe but it is a lot easier to get a drug addict to go to treatment than, and to to say, oh yeah, I have a problem. You're right, I'll go to treatment than it is for a family member. So yes, the families that I work with end up getting help significantly more often than the families of people who just get into treatment kind of by circumstance. Um, But that's the main enemy that i fight against or the main um kind of technique that the broken dynamic uses to to sustain itself um is denial and everybody knows where it comes to addiction and alcoholism denial but you know i can't tell you how many times i've sat across from a dad for instance um and we have the intervention and his daughter goes to treatment and he's like good work you did great we're done here i will see you never and uh <laughs>
0: let's go watch a football game Everything
1: <laughs> exactly
0: <sucks. laughs> yeah exactly
1: and that, yeah so that's that's what i fight against
0: do you think that there needs to be more psychoeducation for families of understanding their role in it um Or does it feel like you're you're hitting against so much denial that you might as well be speaking German to somebody that's speaking Spanish?
1: It's I I love for the education and the information to be out there, but it's not. You know, what I've learned is that you can't you can't logic your way out of an emotional response. And that's what people are having is an emotional response to, you know, like they've seen the devastation and you know that to protect themselves it's mm-hmm. oh I didn't have a part in that oh I didn't do that I didn't I didn't put a needle in my arm um you know and it's not it's not like an openness to actually discuss or receive receive education or information it's just an emotional blockade um so you know there it's difficult to thoughts about like about-
0: mean, maybe just for a minute talk about your feelings about AA, NA, ACA, Al-Anon, you know, the 12-step world, like, do you have, you know, in my own practice, um, I feel like I have two different camps of people, people that are really open to the idea of the 12-step recovery world and the people that really are not. And I'm curious, do you see the same thing? And how much effectiveness do you see from people? I mean, my personal opinion, if you want to hear my opinion, um, is you know, there's so many people that can you finally convince them to go to a 12 step meeting, but they don't understand that you don't really get better until you work the steps, you know what I'm saying? And even earlier today, I had a clinician client of mine who was talking about, you know, the inef- the inefficacy of AA and the research they've done on themselves isn't even effective and i'm sitting here asking myself the question well was the research done on the people that worked the steps or was the research done on the people sitting in the room you know which is two completely different research projects when you think about it can you maybe respond to that
1: i could talk about that for the rest of the day the 12 steps <laughs> is <laughs> um yeah. That's my. I, I worked before I was an interventionist. I was a counselor at a twelve-step immersion treatment center. Uh, I participate in twelve-step recovery myself. And the way that Rosecrest operates is, if there's drugs present, then there's going to be twelve-step. You're going to there's going to be exposure to twelve-step. Now, how big of a part of your recovery you want that to be? You know, in some cases, that's open to being variable. Um, but yeah, you said it. the The fact of the matter is, is that they um years ago the 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 going the going success rate for AA was allegedly three percent i personally i've seen thousands maybe tens of thousands of people involved in 12-step recovery and i've never seen it fail i've never seen it fail even one time i'm not saying that it can't fail i understand the concept of of anecdotal Mm But of all the people I've seen come through, it's never, ever failed even once. And you're telling me that 3% is what's they said. No, it's silliness. The The problems that I see when it it looks like the 12-step recovery, A, N, A, kind of whatever has failed is number one is you're hanging around a 12-step meeting. You're not actually working the 12 steps, which right. why anybody thinks that that will do anything. I have no idea. Why are you in a 12-step meeting if you're not working the 12 steps? -hmm. Um and then brother (laughs) like God bless you, keep coming back, but like what you know, like do you want something? You know, you can't be the coffee. The coffee is notoriously bad. Um and the other problem that (laughs) (laughs) the Mm. other problem that I, I identify too is that you get strings of bad sponsorships. You get People who don't know how to take somebody through the steps. So someone can come in and they can recognize, oh, I'm in a 12-step. There's 12 12 steps hanging all over the wall. I need to do the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And then they get into a corrupted sponsorship lineage. And there's sponsors who think that they know how to take somebody through the steps. But But they really don't. Exactly. They're not, they're not coming out of the literature. They're not, you know, like I've seen a lot of made-up stuff that is not. Mm-hmm. Um is not actually part of the 12 steps in any way that's been agreed on in any group conscious anywhere. It's just something that somebody made up somewhere. Um, so then the newcomer gets taught that. Um they're not totally honest. They're, you know, they don't develop any kind of faith in a power greater than themselves. You know, they never take an inventory of their character defects. Um and they end up using again and then they wash up to like me, for example, when I'm a a counselor at, you know, treatment center or whatever. And they say, I tried the 12 steps. It didn't work. Like kind of like these people you're describing, you know, I'm against the 12 steps. They don't work. They, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, But I've never, I've never seen it fail for someone who's really thoroughly followed the path. I've never personally really
0: intelligent people that have never experienced any kind of 12 step recovery who have, read this quote research and, you know, I I think it's Einstein that said not everything that's valuable needs to be measured. Um, I don't know if I'm quoting that exactly right, but it's somewhere in the ballpark. Um, And Einstein, as we know, was a very intelligent man. Well, you you brought up something interesting, and that was the faith piece. Can you talk about how faith and a power greater than you, Rich, has enriched your own life and how that kind of, um, is your sort of North star going forward and, um, the, the role of faith in your, in your life and in your recovery.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so I, through the process of recovery and, and like I said, i I participate in 12 step recovery through the process of the 12 steps. Um, I came to believe that I had to develop some kind of understanding of a power beyond myself. I played around with some different organized religions, and I didn't land on one. And I'm okay with that. Um, I landed on almost like a polytheistic view of um, of God. You know, I do. I believe in. Um, believe in one major God and then I believe in um, a pervasive sort of spirituality um, and kind of like a spirit of all things. Um, and that, you know, if I have to put it to a word, the most important thing for me about having faith and developing spirituality is just, just to know that I'm not God. And not to have all the answers about God, but that's. um,
0: So, you know, there is one and that it's not you. That's
1: it. That's, yeah, that's the most important.
0: I followed you a little bit and I know that you love to be outside. And I'm curious um, how you kind of tap into your spirituality as you're out in the great outdoors and the big and with, you know, Mother Nature. Talk to me about your love of being outside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so I mentioned that I landed on a polytheistic view of spirituality and that's because I can very much so sense if I'm I'm in the woods in Tennessee deer hunting, there is to me, there's a palpable spirit of the woods. Um, Mm. Or if I'm, um, if I'm down here in Florida and I'm, you know, riding my four wheeler along the canals, like there is a spirit that's associated with with water Um, or if I'm, you know, driving out to you know from down in florida up to georgia and i'm on the road for 8 hours there's like a spirit of the highway there's um you know so so whatever it might be that i can kind of take a breath and just feel um yeah i can i can feel that there's i'm not alone here i'm not alone in the water i'm not bigger than you it. yeah yeah. I'm feeling that. Yeah.
0: That's good. Okay. Last question. Can you talk about one thing that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know?
1: One thing that I know that I know? Um, <laughs> pineapple <laughs> does not belong on pizza. Circumstances <laughs> that <laughs> uh, the yes. a pineapple belong in a pizza. <laughs>
0: Um, Uh,
1: pineapple does not go on pizza one thing that i know that i know that i know is that if there is breath in the lungs that there is hope Um, amen brother you know that's that's something that i will stand on until the day that i die that it doesn't matter how bad things have gotten or how dark things are because i've been to bad places and i've been to dark places um You know, if you can put your two fingers on your neck and if you can feel that little click and that what you're feeling right there is hope, you know, as long as that thing's still ticking, then there's there's a chance there's a chance that everything's going to be okay. Nice.
0: Rich, it's been lovely talking to you today. Thank you. Um, I appreciate your time and um, can you. uh, let us know your website one more time, so that if anyone's listening, they can reach out to you.
1: Totally, it's www.rosecrestrecoveryservices.com. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Rosecrest Recovery Services. Um, I'm on TikTok as Rich the Interventionist. So I put some content up there, and I do a podcast too on Spotify called The Rose Cast.
0: Nice. Well I'll have to be your guest next time. How about that?
1: I would yes, I would like that.
0: That'd be fun. Especially if you ever
1: end up here. here. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. All right, Rich. Well, thank you again.
1: All right, cool. Thank you, Stacey. It's good talking.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Families podcast. Please subscribe to our feed and share this with your family and friends.